listening to The Driven, the podcast that gives you the news and the views, the ins and the outs on electric vehicles. The Driven is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy, One Step Off the Grid and The Driven Websites. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of our new electric vehicle podcast, The Driven. Tony Sieber is a Stanford University academic and co-founder of RethinkX. He's a futurist and a specialist in clean technology disruption. Many years ago, he wrote about the arrival of solar in his book, Solar Trillions. His predictions then were considered insane, but they've turned out to be true. Ditto with his predictions four years ago that by this year, we would start to see the arrival of long distance electric vehicles priced in the 30 to 40,000 mark. That's turned out to be true too. But get ready for his next prediction. That is by 2020, electric vehicles will beat internal combustion engine cars on upfront cost. That means, according to Sieber, by 2030, all new car sales will be electric vehicles. That's the end of petrol and diesel cars. Tony Sieber is a much sought after speaker. He speaks at corporate events and at events around the world, but we are delighted to welcome him from his office in Stanford University in California. Tony Sieber, thanks for joining this webcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Look, it's great to have you. We, we've, we've met a few times over the years and um, very much enjoyed our conversations. In your book, Clean Disruption, Why Conventional Energy and Transportation Will Be Obsolete by 2030, you write that from 2025, people will not be buying petrol cars. Why is that? Correct. Um, if you look at the uh, convergence of three technologies, electric vehicles, self-driving and on demand. So essentially think of Uber uh, or DD um, that are electric and also autonomous. Essentially, that means uh, when that convergence happens, people are going to stop buying cars, period. Um, and essentially, they're going to be bought by fleets. That's one disruption. The other disruption, that's that's a big bang disruption. Um, and the other disruption that's happening uh, in parallel is the EV disruption. Um, so essentially the cost curve of electric vehicles is such that it, by 2020, uh, an EV with 200 mile range, 300 plus uh, kilometer range, is going to cost less to buy than the equivalent internal combustion engine automobile. Uh, also, the EVs are 10 times cheaper to fuel uh, and also 10 to 100 times cheaper to maintain and also more powerful, which means that uh, starting 2020, uh, the electric vehicle will be the economic, the rational economic choice because individuals will be able to buy um, a more powerful cheaper to maintain and cheaper to fuel car than uh, their existing options. So either way, from 2020 to about 2025, there's going to be uh, two parallel disruptions. I'd like to get into the second um, disruption yeah. um, in a minute. Let, let's first go on the um, the fact that we're not going to be buying petrol cars after 2025. Yes. You write that, that if you buy a car now, it'll probably be the last sort of 
um, electric car that, or the last petrol car that you ever buy. Yes. Um, and I guess that sort of fits in Australia. I think the average vehicle life is about 10 years, in some places 12 years. So that probably makes sense. It's really interesting what you say about the economics of electric vehicles. I mean, at the moment, they're more expensive, um, but they're coming down pretty <clears throat> quickly. You made this prediction about two years ago. Is what you've seen since then confirming <clears throat> um, your views, your, 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 your proposition? Yeah, I actually made the prediction four years ago. And what I predicted was that um, uh, by this time, 2018, mid-2018, we'll see um, electric vehicles with 200-mile range in the 35 to 40,000 US dollar uh, sticker price. And of course, four years ago, that sounded insane because we had the Tesla or, I mean, there were only a couple of EVs and they cost eighty dollars to $100,000. Um, so now we have about four cars that are essentially in that range, in the 200 mile range with thirty-five dollars to $40,000 sticker price. So essentially the cost curve in the low end of electric vehicles is happening. It's happening exactly as I predicted. Well, it might be happening in the, in the United States and in Europe and Asia, but unfortunately it's not happening in Australia yet, but we do hope it happens very soon. <laughs> um, look, a couple of the things that you point out, and it's really interesting, I'd just like to sort of dive into those ones as well, because you talk about what's driving those cost reductions, and you make a couple of points about the efficiency of engines um, that, um, that, that that's really interesting, and also the maintenance. I mean, in the maintenance you point out that an electric vehicle has, or the average electric mocha might have 20 moving parts, yet in an internal combustion engine there's more than 2,000 or 3,000 parts so that's I mean I, I guess maintenance is done through a, uh, through a download over the internet <laughs> correct correct uh, so the the electric vehicle is about five times more energy efficient um, than the internal combustion engine automobile um, that in and of itself is not what's disruptive because that has been the case for decades but when you combine that with the fact that uh, electricity is less expensive than um, fossil fuels, than gasoline or diesel, when you combine that is when you get the um, fact that EVs are 10 times cheaper on a per mile basis to, to charge than the equivalent um, diesel or gasoline car, 10 times. And of course, um, they're also 10 to 100 times cheaper to maintain. Um, you know, every time we see a 10x, you may see a potential disruption and um, EVs that we know last 500,000 miles, so 800,000 kilometers, which is, you know, two and a half to three times more than um, uh, a gas car. So essentially they last the equivalent of 50 years if you were to drive them individually. Uh, of course, who drives a car for 50 years? You know, unless you live in Cuba, right? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, fleets do drive cars 100,000 miles per year. So for fleets, electric vehicles make sense uh, today, uh, rationally speaking. And this takes us to our next um next idea, the next idea that you had. And this was the proposition that by 2030, you were more likely than not to not own a car. In other words, people are going to have shared vehicles, it's going to be electric vehicles, they're going to pick you up from your place and go somewhere else. Um, we actually, when we published that story, it was just a year ago when we when we wrote about that. And uh, I, I think our story got on the Drudge Report, which is a right-wing internet site in the US, and we've never seen such a response. About 200,000 people came through to our website and about 2,000 comments, and they basically all had a similar message, was, based, was that... Um, 
I've got a pickup truck and I've got a gun and you're not having it, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> but there was this idea, you know, we value freedom and that's why we have our own car. First of all, um, I have a few problems with the idea that um, I might not get to um, drive my electric vehicle because I have driven a couple, I don't own an electric vehicle, but I've driven driven them a couple of times and they're fantastic. And the idea that I might not get to drive it because it's going to be automated in five or ten years is, is, is a bit troubling to me. But um, tell me why mm. we're going to go in, um, and I guess you're sort of saying it's going to happen in the cities first. Tell me why people will not own their cars. Um, yeah, so... Uh, you know, the thing about loving cars happened already with other products. You know, we loved horses and yet uh, from 1908 on, we stopped uh, buying horses or owning horses. And the reason was, again, a 10x. A 10x cost differential at the time in 1908 when the Ford Model T came out. It had 20 horsepower versus 2 horsepower uh, for a carriage. And yet it costs the same. So it was a you know 10 time cost differential for the same um, uh, horsepower. And it would drive longer and further and so on. And of course, within uh, a decade, basically horses were done with as far as transportation and as far in cities. Uh, and it took you know 20 years from 1900 to 1920. And this is more than 100 years ago for internal combustion engine uh, automobiles in America to go from essentially zero to 95% of miles. And this is more than 100 years ago. You you show in your speeches this wonderful um, couple of old photos, and I think it's Fifth Avenue in New York, is it? Correct. One, yes, yeah. one where there's a, with a whole bunch of horse and carts, and one car. If you look really, really carefully, and then thirteen year, thirteen years later, it's all um, it's all cars and just one horse. If you see yeah. one horse and cart. Yeah. So why is it going to happen again and even more quickly? Because um, you know when I've studied disruptions, you know way uh, you know uh, back in history since 1454 uh, or so. And uh, every time we've had a 10x cost differential for a product or service, there's been a disruption. Uh, So the first printed book was 10 times cheaper than a manuscript book, uh, 10x. And uh, was that the disruption in 1454? (laughs) Correct, correct, exactly, (laughs) sorry. Uh, And, uh, you know, 10x has always caused a disruption. And so what we're going to see, and also the other thing is that disruptions are enabled by convergence. And what does a technology convergence, what that means, what a technology convergence means is, uh, I'll take you back not that long ago to 2007, when both Apple and Google came up with a smartphone. Uh, why was it 2007, not 2005 or 2009? Uh, that's because all the technologies that made a $600 smartphone possible um, converged basically 2007. So uh, essentially that technology convergence made the smartphone possible. It didn't tell you who was going to win. Uh, it turned out to have been Apple and Google, uh, but you know any of 30 companies could have done that. Um, mm. So going forward to the uh, transportation disruption, what we see is a convergence of autonomous, electric, and on-demand transportation. And let's assume that level four autonomous technology is going to be approved and ready 2021, so three years from now. Um, when that happens, the cost uh, 
of, you know, this is what I call transport as a service, um, is going to be 10 times cheaper than the cost of buying a new car. So assume 2021, you're going to go and buy a new car. Essentially, your decision is going to be, do I want to spend $50,000 uh, over five years to buy a new car? Or do I want to pay 100 bucks a month to get a subscription for you know this transport as a service thing? So Uber on demand, uh, DD on demand. Um, you know, this is a 10 time cost differential um, and it's a no brainer. Um, you know, do we love our cars? Well, some people do, but, um, you know, if you look at the United States, half, 50% of American families have less than $1,000 in the bank. Um, you know, we're the wealthiest country on earth and half of our families have less than a thousand bucks. So what do you think they're going to do? They're going to get into a $50,000 debt or you know, they're going to send their kids to college and they're going to buy a house and so on and so forth. It's a no brainer. So they're going to stop buying a car. That's really interesting. So what you're talking about, there's not going to be a top down thing driven by the wealthy, as we sometimes imagine uh, disruptions are. This is actually going to be a bottom thing uh, driven by just the simple economics for the people on lower incomes. Correct. I mean, it's all about economics and it's all about the demographics that have essentially been ignored by, you know, the, the car ownership uh, model the gasoline model and the whole transit system that's been modeled for a hundred years around that ownership of cars. But, um, you know, the poor, um, the, the, the middle class who doesn't live in the, in the downtown, uh, you know, the high real estate areas, um, the, the elderly, the disabled, the pensioners and so on, they have actually been ignored by the existing system. So you tell me, you love your car? Well, maybe, but there's 50% of the population who that has been ignored uh, by the existing system. What, what does it mean then for traffic on the road? And I'm thinking particularly in this early transition period, because some people have been suggesting, okay, that's a great idea. But doesn't that mean then that if you've got autonomous cars, you're actually, you're actually um, sending them off to make frivolous trips and what have you, things that you might have done otherwise or waited for a longer trip or, or something like that? Will we end up with more kilometres driven or ultimately less kilometres driven? Yeah, so we see 50% more kilometres driven. Uh, and that's because of what I'm just saying, because... Um, demographics who have been ignored by the existing system who there's a lot of pent-up demand for transportation that is not currently fulfilled so if you look at uh, for instance um, there are poor people I think 40 percent who for whom there are jobs that are more than a 90-minute transit away from where they live um, and, and and that seems to be like a dividing line um, you know, they're, they're not currently well served by, by the market. So um, once you have a very inexpensive, convenient um, form of transportation, then that market is going to be well served by, uh, you know, for the poor, again, for the disabled, for the elderly and, and so on. So, yeah, there, there's going to be an increase in, in uh, you know, kilometers traveled, but there's also going to be four times fewer cars on the road uh, because cars are going to drive about a hundred thousand miles a year each car whereas now they drive ten thousand miles a year and one thing that um, we have done 
is subsidize the existing model by subsidizing, for instance, parking. So, you know, a third, uh, just about, of uh, cities are parking. A third oh. of the landmass of cities is parking. So once you don't have parking, because they're going to be uh, essentially obsolete, um, essentially you're going to have more cars, uh, fewer cars, four times fewer cars on the road, um, and you're not going to have parking. So these cars also drive better because they have sensors that are really superhuman that uh, can see 100, 200 meters in front and behind and uh, the side they use roads about two to four times better than humans. They're not distracted. Uh, they have better sensors and better you know, processing power. Um, and they're not distracted, right? Um, and on top of that, they have a view, uh, you know, like a Waze, three-dimensional high-definition map of the whole city. So they can plan the, the trip much better than humans do. So put all that together, uh, and essentially congestion is going to go away, even if they're going to be more, you know, uh, kilometers driven. So congestion will go away with more kilometers or because pe people will be driving at different times or, or well, how that work? People are gonna, uh, not going to be driving. Um, essentially, cars are going to be driving. Uh, there are going to be fewer cars that drive better uh, and there's not going to be parking. Uh, you know, parking is a huge form of subsidy. And as people stop buying cars, uh, and parking becomes empty, they're going to be taken out, taken out of, of uh, circulation, if you will. Uh, so we're going to have a lot more roads space because parking goes away and the existing roads are going to be better utilized by uh, self-driving cars. And if we do have traffic jams, then I suppose we shouldn't worry so much because it's going to be quite quiet, it's going to be quite clean, and it's actually just a bunch of robots sitting there anyway. And, and you know, the, the, essentially the idea that it's going to be individuals who own these uh, self-driving cars is, I mean, doesn't stand up to the evidence. I mean, the evidence, uh, the economic, purely economic uh, evidence says that they're going to be owned by fleets. Uh, that are going to drive them 100,000 miles a year and so on. Now, there is a regulatory component. Um, essentially, uh, you know, we are going to have zombie cars only if we subsidize them. And by that, I mean uh, that the existing gasoline tax will go to become a per kilometer tax. Um, you think that's inevitable? Yes. I mean, basically, if you take the existing transportation system, the uh, all cars, um, if you have a per mile tax of one cent per mile, uh, you can essentially flip the uh, all the income generated by gasoline tax into, um, you know, a new system per, per kilometer per mile tax. Um, now, one cent is... Uh, just average, um, you know, basically, if you want to regulate cars the right way, uh, you would say, okay, if you have one person, then it's going to be one cent. If you have three people, it's going to be, say, five, uh, you know, 0.5 cents. If you have 20 people, it's going to be, you know, 0.2 cents or whatever, right? So you, you dial up and down. If it's 3 to 7 p.m., uh, in your downtown, then it's going to be two or three cents. Uh, so you're going to adjust the tax on demand and in real time according to uh, social benefits and regulatory benefits and so on. So this, this you know, this is all going to be 
uh, in real time. And, and so depending on where you are, uh, the tax is going to be not, you know, a, a tax that, that you set in place and then you come back to it 10 years, but that you're going to dial in and out uh, depending on, on real time uh, situations. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. So I'm just trying to think about what decision that I would make now. Like I'm one of these, um, um, I'm I'm happy to admit I'm one of these people, um, half a million people who sort of put down a deposit for a Tesla Model 3, that $35,000 car that you're talking about that would be available in 2018. And and here it is. I don't think the low cost version has quite made it to the market, but but it's not far away. And I may have to wait another year or two in Australia before I actually get my car. Um, that's going to be a fair whack of money and uh, more, uh, twice as much as what I've ever paid for a car before. And I'm kind of happy to do it because I'm kind of excited about electric vehicles and things like that. Yes. But, um, but it sounds like that um, it might be the last car I buy and the last car I actually drive because the next step is going to be um, almost certainly autonomous. Yeah, well, um, yes, it's going to, no matter what you buy, it's going to be the last car you buy. Um, so the question is, if you have to buy a car, what do you buy? Um, mm. So I would say lease it, don't buy it, um, <laughs> because it is going to be your last car. And, you know, when the transport as a service disruption happens, it means that within a couple of years, the resale value of existing cars is going to drop down to essentially nothing. Um, and, you know, internal combustion engine automobiles, uh, their resale value may actually fall into negative territory. I mean, it's going to be negative pricing. And we've seen negative pricing in other markets, so this is not um, unusual per se. Um, so, you know, again, the question is, what do I do? One, one you lease the car. Um, two, uh, you know, you get an electric vehicle because uh, electric vehicles are going to have a much higher resale value because you can take that car and, say, put it on a fleet, uh, for right. instance. Um, and, you know, several car companies are working on that. And, and uh, electric, like I said, electric vehicles are going to be the, um, uh, the right economic choice for on-demand transportation. So not going to be, it's not going to be internal combustion engine vehicles. It's going to be electric vehicles. So if you have to buy a car, um, or get a car, own a car, lease it and, and get a, an electric vehicle because of, that's the right economic choice. Do the big companies that play in this area understand what they're dealing with here? Like I went to a launch of a Jaguar I-Pace in, um, in Sydney just a few weeks ago, um, and they're just sort of talking about this big transition from them from petrol vehicles to electric vehicles, and, and, and that's great. But basically, the car is the same as what we have now, except it's got an electric motor in it and instead of an internal combustion engine. What you're talking about, though, is a more fundamental transformation. So it seems as almost though like they've got to do two leaps haven't they? One from a car driven by um, d- driven by a person, which will be electric rather than fossil fuel, and then almost having to pretty quickly on top of that design cars which are then going to be suitable and comfortable to travel in if you're not driving. Correct. Um, essentially, you know, the new cars are going to be computers on wheels. Um, you know, they're going to have a big battery and. Um, for wheels and, and they're going to be driven by a computer. So, um, yeah, they're, they're going to be um, a totally different uh, transportation mode from what we have today. Uh, it's not going to be just swapping an engine, uh, a gasoline engine for an electric engine. That's the wrong way to think about it. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that that by now, a lot of uh, car companies get it. If you look at 
GM. Now they say we're not a car company, we're a transport as a service company. Uh, if you look at Ford, uh, you know, they're cutting back uh, on essentially most of their product lines to save cash over the next couple of years to invest in software and technology, um, four or five billion dollars. So they get that they need to go and become a technology company. Um, so, you know, four years ago, there was a denial, but Today, I think that um, you know a lot of the large OEMs get it. Not all of them, but but I think they do get it. Mm. Just going back to some of the things about the automated um, driving or uh, autonomous driving, and some of those you, you talked about level four and level five. For those who don't quite understand what that is, what, 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 what are you meaning here? Yeah, so level four means um, that it's a computer on wheels. It, it doesn't need a human to drive it. Um, you know, it essentially drives itself. If you look at the Waymo trials in Phoenix, they have this um, uh, trial where it's autonomous. It, it drives itself. However, it's only limited to a geographic area. So that's called geofenced. So, um, you know, whether it's 100 square miles or 600 square miles, uh, the car that drives in Phoenix, Arizona, may not drive in Oslo. Um, Norway, or may not drive in uh, Portland, Oregon. Uh, so it's geofenced. It's 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 uh, not what's called fully quote unquote self-driving, which is level five. Level five means that it can drive in any circumstance: snow, uh, sun, water. It doesn't matter. It can drive there. Now, part of the mythology of self-driving is that we have to get to level five. Uh, before they're commercially available, and that's not true. Once you have level four, even if it's geofenced, which means they can drive in cities, whether it's Phoenix or San Francisco or Sydney, um, you know, as long as they drive within a certain range, they keep expanding that range, um, and within three, four years, uh, they can drive, you know, to the suburbs and so on and so forth until at some point we get to level five. Um, and, and that means that they can drive anywhere, up and down, uh, at any, uh, in any weather condition, and, and so on and so forth. That's the main difference. But um, the, difference, the, the, the difference between level four and five is not as huge as between level three and four. What does that mean? Level three still needs human drivers. Um, and there's a big um, gap between level three and four in the sense that you have to let go of the human uh, in level three to go into a fully computer-driven um, uh, car in level four. That is very difficult. And that's why a lot of companies uh, have not gone that route. They go straight into level four. So they have designed cars to never be driven by um, humans. That's really interesting. Yeah. And what's, what, yeah. What's going to drive this? Is this going to be a mixture of economics or is it going to be regulatory or is it even going to be something like insurance? Like, you know, can you insure a car that's actually driven by a human at, at, at some point in time? Yeah. So what's going to enable this uh, self-driving technology is economics. Uh, essentially, you're going to have um, self-driving cars that are also electric and fleet owned that are going to cost on a per mile basis a lot less than owning a car um, so essentially consumers are going to choose it because it's 
it's the right economic choice. They don't have to drive. They don't have to own a car. They can be productive while they don't drive to go to work or school or or, or shopping or whatever. So that is going to drive um, the disruption. Once the model is proved, once it's proved that um, you know humans are a lot more dangerous uh, drivers than computers are, uh, then the cost for human drivers of insurance is going to price people out of the market. Uh, uh, so insurance costs are going to keep going up and up and up until probably by 2030, maybe before, uh, they're going to be priced out of the market, uh, just, just for purely, again, economic reason. And regulation always follows the market. You know, very seldom does it lead. Uh, and, and once humans are being priced out of the market, then regulation is probably going to come in and say, okay, so we're going to start banning humans first in the cities, just like we banned horses. Um, first in the cities, then on the highways, and then transportation, period. Um, you know, to the point that if you have a horse now, you have to drive to ride a horse, um, you know, in, in, in racetracks and so on. But you can't, you know, ride a horse in, in the city or on the highway. Uh, and the same thing is going to happen with cars. That's only going to work, though, if you've got the availability that you do have now. Like people have a car, it is incredibly available. I'm just thinking in semi-rural areas or out in the suburbs. They'd like to be able to hop into it and go somewhere. Will they be able to do that in the future with automated vehicles? Yeah, well, what we see is that um, we're going to have, by 2030, we're going to have about 80% fewer cars on the road. Um, so folks in cities are not going to own them. And, and anywhere close to the city. So for about 90% of us, that's going to be the case. Uh, there's going to be, a, they're going to be more convenient, cheaper. There's going to be a critical mass of, of um, cars. And when I say cars, I also mean buses and, and, and every form of transportation. Um, but for a small percent of the population in rural areas, that's not going to be the case. Um, so we see even 2030 of the existing cars, about 40% are going to be individually owned. 60% are going to be fleet owned, Uber and DD and, and you know, Ford or whoever. Whoever else. Mm. Yeah. Um, and 40% are going to be individually owned. But that 40% is only going to be driven 10,000 miles a year, meaning that they're only going to drive about 5% of the passenger miles total, right? 5% only. But yeah, we still see Got individual it. ownership by um, 2030. But but here's the uh, what's going to happen. Those miles are going to cost 10 times more in rural areas than they are in the cities. So you are going to have uh, the poor rural uh, owners who are going to be paying 10 times more per mile than urban dwellers. And that's not fair, right? Um, so what we're going to see is uh, that the role of public transportation uh, in 2030 is going to be to subsidize uh, transport as a service in the rural areas, just like, huh. you know, electricity. I mean, electricity, we subsidized electricity in the rural areas. Uh, as a society, we made that decision um, in advanced economies. 100% of the population is, um, uh, you know, has access to the grid. Uh, but that's not because of purely economic reason. We subsidized that. We subsidized uh, access to clean water for everybody. We subsidized access to the postal system for everybody. Um, so what we're going to find is that by 2030, there's going to be a call to subsidize 
the you know about five percent of the population that is not going to have necessarily access to transport as a service uh, because they're going to be paying ten times more for you know for cars and so on. That's really interesting, Tony. We're going to have to wrap it up pretty soon, but I do want to ask one more question, and that's about your thesis that. Uh, all the fossil fuel industries, more or less, coal, oil, and gas, will be redundant by 2030. Are you still holding to that prediction? Yeah, uh, for transportation and energy, yes. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're going to go down to zero, uh, but it means essentially that you know transportation is going to be electric um, and electricity is going to be solar plus wind. Um, yes, so uh, gas, nukes, coal, and oil are going to be obsolete by, by 2030. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's a fascinating world that we're going through. Look, we we'll probably have to wrap it up there, Tony. I really do thank you very much for um, for a, a great chat today. It's my it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.